And I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll start working through the text. Father, we praise you because you've accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. We praise you that you have shined the light of the gospel in the midst of our darkness. Lord, you have, by your grace, guided us in the way of peace through your Son. And Lord, we praise you that now those who were spiritually poor can be made rich. Those who are in darkness can see light. And those, Lord, who are far off and who are lost can be found and brought near. And so, Lord, we pray that, yes, we would understand the reason for the season. But, Lord, more importantly, we, would, we pray that we would meditate upon what your work in Christ means for us this holiday season, but not just this holiday season, but for the rest of our lives. And that we would begin to meditate and think upon how we are to respond to the work that you have accomplished in and through your son. And so, Lord, we pray for the help of the Spirit in this, that you would guide us and lead us in this time of meditating upon your word. And we pray that the Spirit would take this word and cause it to fall like seed upon good soil and that you would bear much fruit in and through our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christmas season is about expectation. Many of you, much like my beloved wife, have been longing for this season all year long. You've got great expectations for this season to be absolutely glorious. It may be an expectation to spend quality time with your family, cracking chestnuts over an open fire, drinking eggnog, even wearing tacky Christmas sweaters. Great expectations. Others of us, like myself, may be looking forward to the lights and the bling of Christmas. So much so that you go to the light shows all throughout town. You go to the square so that you can see the lights light up the night sky over Fayetteville. These great expectations for this season are one of the reasons why Kristen and I, my wife, went to New York City last week. We saw the tree at Rockefeller Center lit up. We saw people ice skating on the skating rink there at Rockefeller Center. We saw the Nutcracker statues all in a row. We saw Saks Fifth Avenue lit up, synchronized to Christmas music. It was glorious. These are the kinds of things that we come to expect out of the Christmas season. It's why everybody... Not everybody, but most flock to New York City. They go into the city so they can see all this hoopla of the Christmas season. Now, I'm not going to say if it met expectations or not, but that's what we wanted. We're going to travel many miles in order to just get a piece of the Christmas cheer for all the boys and girls to hear. In our passage this morning, Israel has great expectations. Yes, I know that is an awful transition. Israel has great expectations. Bear with me. They have been longing for hundreds of years for God to fulfill his promise to visit his people and to bring them salvation from the hand of their enemies. And that day of great expectation 
was now dawning for God's people in our passage this morning. But how would these expectations of salvation be fulfilled? How are they going to be fulfilled? And how are God's people called to respond to this great work of salvation? Well, that's where Zechariah's prophecy comes in right here. So I want to get a girl to read Zechariah. Sorry, Zechariah, that's so hilarious. Uh, I want to get a girl to read Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. So I'm giving you 57 through 66. 66, uh, to give you some background. It's just a little bit of background before we get into the content of Zechariah's prophecy. So, can I get a lady? If not, I'll call on a lady to read Luke 1, 57 through 80. Billy Nisnik, you have a glorious voice. Why don't you go ahead? Hey, we love our Bibles. Beautiful. All right. So there are really two points this morning. You've got them there on your handout. Christians who've experienced the salvation of God in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Those Christians are those who praise the God of salvation and they serve the God of salvation. Two points that I want to look at for believers that understand this salvation and this salvation is theirs in Christ and they've received forgiveness of sins. They praise the God of salvation, and they serve the God of salvation. So right here, this text breaks down rather nicely into two separate sets, essentially. Um, And we're going to be dealing, we're going to focus on verses 67 through 80 in particular. I'm not going to go back up into the passage uh, about Elizabeth and John, or sorry, Elizabeth and Zechariah having John and them naming him John, all that. I'm not going back up into that. I'm going to focus solely on Zechariah's prophecy. It breaks down nicely. 
In the original, it's two sentences. That's right. One big run-on. So from verses 67 all the way down to 75 is one sentence. And then verses 60, uh, sorry, verses 76 on down to 79 is another sentence. The first section is really dealing with Jesus' role in God's work of salvation. And then the second section is dealing with John's role in God's work of salvation. But notice, looking at both roles in God's work of salvation. As we're going to see, the focus is upon God. One role serves the other, and both call for the same response. One man's role serves the other, and they both call for the same response. So number one, praise the God of salvation. Zechariah, nine months earlier, had received word from the angel Gabriel that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a son, and he would turn the hearts of God's people back to God, and he would prepare the Lord's people for the Lord's arrival. And now, nine months later, at John's birth, these words come out of Zechariah's mouth in this prophecy. So look with me there in verse 67. And the, yeah, the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah when he was on duty as a priest in the temple, that is found right at the outset of Luke chapter 1 in verses 5 all the way through 25. You can find that there. I'm not going to go into that, but you can find that there. So look with me there in verse 67. Luke records that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he begins to prophesy. Now, to prophesy just means it's God's message to his people through through a mediator, such as Zechariah, and he's calling his people to respond to him. He's calling his people to a response. And so right out of the gate, something unique is happening right here. People aren't just kind of filled with the Holy Spirit and begin prophesying. It's been years since the people of Israel have had any word from God. And all of a sudden, people are getting filled with the Holy Spirit and are proclaiming this great work of God. John, before he's even born, is filled with the Spirit. He leaps with joy whenever Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. That is John the Baptist's mother. Mary, the mother of Jesus. John's filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, is filled with the Spirit. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. There is something that is unique about this. And so these two things right here, the prophesying and the filling of the Spirit, are indicating that Zechariah is enabled by the Spirit to speak God's will, to speak God's very will. It also shows us that this, that, uh, this is a key turning point in the history of salvation. Right? Prophesying. And then also the filling of the Spirit. This is a key turning point in salvation history that Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah and Joel, had proclaimed long ago and indicated that God spoke through them about a day when he would pour out his Spirit on his people. Get that in Isaiah 44, if you're taking notes, in Joel chapter 2. Luke is telling us this is big. This is big news. And notice something interesting here. Right? Zechariah, nine months earlier, had received this word. Had received this word from the angel Gabriel that his barren wife would bear him a son. And you think that after all those hard years, right? Now in their old age, Gabriel shows up and says, Oh, by the way, much like Abraham and Sarah, 
you're going to bear a son. Congratulations. Now, you would think that after all those hard years right there, suffering a barren womb, not having a child, suffering, as it says uh, in a couple of verses earlier, suffering reproach by people because of that barren womb. You would think that the focus of this praise song would be on John. Well, it's not. It's fascinating. It's not. It is solely upon God in Christ. That's what this passage is about. John's role is to play the background and to shine the light upon the sun. Zechariah's role is proclaiming this glorious work of God in giving praise to the God who's brought this about. Verse 68. Notice what he says. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Praise be to God. That's what it is. And for the rest of the passage, he continues praising God for this great work of salvation. You can imagine. Barren for years. And now he's praising God for this work of salvation. And the fact that his son gets to play a role in that. He's not like just wanting to brag on his son a little bit. No, he's focused upon praising the Lord. Now I want to point this out at the beginning for us to consider Zechariah's priorities. That's why I bring this uh, to the forefront right here. The focus of this word is upon God. But upon God and his work on behalf of his people. It's upon God and his work on behalf of his people. The most important thing for Zechariah and for God's people wasn't just that Zechariah had a son, even though that's glorious. It wasn't just that. But it was that God has now come and met and visited his people and is here to stay a while. It's to look at how this birth of his son plays a role in bringing about the Messiah that was long proclaimed about in the Old Testament. And now that day is here. That's what it's about. It's about the fulfilling of promises of salvation to God's people. Some of the major themes throughout the entire book of Luke. Fulfilling of promises. And as well, the work of salvation. And we get the word salvation three times. I think it's only mentioned like four. That noun is only mentioned four times throughout the whole gospel of Luke. So what are your priorities this Christmas season? What are your priorities over the Christmas break? I know you're focusing on finals right now. Right? They are here. Congratulations. Be the most stressed you'll be all semester long. But in the midst of your finals, in the midst of all this chaos, where are your priorities? You can experience joy in the midst of all of that. Is it focused on getting or maybe giving gifts? Is that what it's focused on? Is it focused upon family? Is it focused on maybe time off, maybe sleep, maybe binge-watching the crown. I sound girly. And understand, these aren't necessarily bad things. These are not bad things. But if they take the highest priority in your life, they can become bad things. What's the priority that you have in your life right now? I'm afraid that myself included, that all of us, including myself, may get so distracted with all the flashiness of this holiday season that we completely forget 
what God has done for us in Christ. You don't want to look back at the end of the semester and say, man, I absolutely wasted my Christmas break. You don't want to say that coming in back into January. You don't want to say that. So let this passage reorient the priority of your heart to God this season and to every season of your life. This is not just for the Christmas season. Christ has come. It's not like they were celebrating Christmas back in the day. Okay? Christ has come. That's for every season of life. So write down a couple of things that may threaten your focus on God. Be height, Let your senses be heightened to, and, and aware of what is going to distract you from focusing upon what God has done for you in Christ. And write down some of those ways um, that you can focus upon the Lord this season. All right, so why is Zechariah busting out in praise to God? Why is God worthy of praise? That's what we're going to look at. Look at me at verse 68. Notice, the, notice in verse 68, the for right there. It's another word just for because. Because. So Zechariah gives you this big statement, blessed is the God of Israel. And then what he does in the rest of his time, he gives you all the reasons for why you ought to be praising God for what is about to take place and what has taken place. And so hundreds of years, right? So right here, we've got, we've got Zechariah giving praise to God. And so what I want to do is I want to focus our time on those reasons for why he's giving praise to God. I want to focus on those reasons. And I want to give you five. I want to look at five of these uh, reasons for him praising God. Number one, God visits his people in verse 68. So for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, people have been longing and waiting for God to show up as if he's been gone. Hundreds of years have passed and people haven't heard from God. The spirit of prophecy has died out. It has ceased. Israel is now feeling the threat of the Roman Empire breathing down their neck. And they're longing to be delivered from oppression And for God to make all those promises to their forefathers come true. That's what they're longing for. Hundred hundred years go by. Another hundred years go by. Another hundred years go by. Another hundred years go by. And still no word. And all of a sudden, you've got these people rolling up on the scene. And they start prophesying. Proclaiming about the work of God. And calling people to praise the Lord. We see this, I mean, with Mary. Think about it. A, virgin, a young virgin woman, right, starts proclaiming the work of God. She starts praising God. And then you go to Elizabeth, an old barren woman, starts praising God. And then you go to Zechariah. Oh, well, Zechariah, whenever he got his word from Gabriel, what did he do? He didn't believe him. And yet, what did Gabriel do? He shut his mouth up. He muted him for nine months throughout his son's, throughout that whole pregnancy. And yet now, the first thing out of his lips, as we read in the passage just before the one we're looking at, is praising, like praising God for what he has done. He learned his lesson. And so, all of this, you see this going throughout all of these various songs, throughout the, what we call the prologue of Luke, the beginning of Luke to Luke's gospel. Everybody is praising God. Simeon, Anna, Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah. Everybody's praising God right here. Because God has visited his people. 
And so it's interesting because this language right here actually evokes the the Exodus where God heard the cries of his people, he visited them, and then he delivers them from the hand of their enemies to serve him. This message is making it clear that God has come to visit town and he wants to stay a while. And so this God is a personal God. He doesn't look far off and say, let's just figure it out. They're just going to figure it out. No, he enters into their plight and he provides the way of salvation for them. Number two, God redeems his people. Redeems is just another word for saying that God delivers them from the bondage of sin by the payment of his son's life. That's what redemption is. And so God redeems his people. We see this in verses 68 through 69. Salvation is the work of God alone. Salvation is solely the work of God alone. His people don't redeem themselves. They can't, or they would have already redeemed themselves already. They cannot do it. They are like a dead corpse in the ground that cannot get up out of that casket because they are dead. They cannot do it. If, and right here, we see that it's God who raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, which is just an Old Testament expression. When you talk about a horn, you're talking about an animal's strength. This is an Old Testament expression used to speak of this kingly Messiah who would defend and who would fight for and who would protect his people. Right? So once again, fulfillment of Old Testament language right here. God is raising up a horn of salvation from the line of David, from the house of David. Christ comes from the house of David, this kingly Messiah who would come and protect his people and attack those who are against him. And notice what this salvation implies. It implies that we actually need it. Salvation implies that we need it. That we all come into this world on the side of judgment, and we need an act of God to get us out of that judgment. We need an act of God to do that. Number three, the third reason that Zechariah is praising God is that God fulfills his promises in verses 72 and 73. So notice how Zechariah speaks of God's work. He has, he has visited. Notice the, notice the tense of these verbs right here. Just working through the text. God has visited and redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers. He has remembered his covenant to Abraham and given us the privilege to serve him without fear. He uses past tense verbs to describe an action and a work that hasn't been done yet. For Zechariah, salvation these promises of God are as good as done whenever they come out of his mouth. They're as good as done. Zechariah takes God at his word, and the birth of his own son is a sign that God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham and David. For you and I, those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. They all find their yes and amen in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. And so when God speaks a promise, it is as good as done. That's why Zechariah is speaking in the past tense. It's already happened, and yet it actually hasn't even happened in time yet. It's as good as done. Number four, God delivers his people to serve him. Notice in verses 74 through 75 that God keeps his covenant to Abraham 
in order to grant us to serve him. Watch this. God keeps his covenant to Abraham in order to grant us to serve him. So one of the purposes of our salvation is to serve God. That's one of the purposes of our salvation. Yes, it's to praise God like Zechariah is doing, but it's to serve God in verses 74 and 75. Salvation is the means to serving the Lord. And so we can't rightly serve the Lord if we haven't been saved. So those who think that they're serving the Lord, they have to ask well, whether or not they've been saved. You can't rightly serve the Lord if you have not been saved. All those who truly serve the Lord are saved. No service, as we like to say if you're going into a restaurant, no service without salvation. There it is. Stephen Martin this week. No service without salvation. All right. Number five. And that was stupid. God shines light in our darkness and guides us into a life of peace. Hey, it's all about humility here this morning, right? Barren, old barren ladies, you know, are becoming pregnant. These are humble ladies, right? Humility right here. All right. Which actually completely undoes the whole passage. All right. Or completely undoes everything I just said. All right. Number five. So God shines light in our darkness and guides us into the life of peace. Verse 79. Notice the metaphors right here speak about the work of Christ. The sunrise giving light, causing the darkness of the night to fade away. Guidance into a life of peace for those lost at war with their sin. All of these ways of speaking are ways of speaking about the salvation of God and the work of Christ. There are different ways and different metaphors about speaking about this glorious salvation. All of this, and here's the beautiful part of all of this. Look at me there uh, in verse 78. Verse 78. All of this is done because of the tender mercy of our God. Or the compassionate mercy of our God toward us in the gospel. The good news is that we can have forgiveness of sins and not receive what our sins deserve. That's what mercy is. Not receiving what our sins deserve. And all of it's grounded in God's tender mercy to us. So what's the point of this exercise? You might be thinking like, why are we just, you know, fiddling through the text right here and look at all these reasons of Zechariah that he gives for praising God. The point is that God has provided you and I what we could not provide for ourselves. The only right response of the heart ought to be one of praise when you hear this good news. Not regret. It ought to be praise and not regret because you don't play a part in it. You don't play a part in it. This is a solely a work of God. And praise is the proper response of a heart that has bowed the knee to its Redeemer. That's what it is. And think about this. The constant refrain on the lips of Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah is praise. Simeon, Simeon, Anna, all praising God because he has provided what they have been longing for for centuries. And yet we live on this side of the cross. We can't wait two weeks for Christmas to come because we want our stinking gifts. And all of a sudden, they've been waiting for centuries and yet God finally visits them and provides what they've been longing for. We live on this side of the cross. 
it is readily available to us to know the depth and breadth of this salvation. So do you know that salvation? I hope you do. I hope you do. Study the depth and breadth of the salvation. Maybe it's you go back home over the break, you study this passage. Maybe you go look at the servant songs of Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49 and 50, and then 52 and 53 with the suffering servant. Maybe you study those passages. Maybe you study Ephesians 1, and you begin to look at all of those glorious blessings that you have in Christ. Study those passages. So will you spend time meditating on all that God is for you in Christ over this break. If your heart isn't inclined to praise God, it may be that you haven't meditated long enough upon the depth and the breadth of what God has accomplished for you. Praising the God of our salvation is the result of meditation on the God of our salvation. We praise God because we've meditated upon the work of God. All right, the greatest gift that you could ever receive this holiday season is the gift of God himself. There it is. So we praise the God of our salvation because he's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. One of the purposes of this salvation is to serve the God of salvation. It's one of the purposes. So number two, serve the God of salvation. So now we shift from the past tense of what God has already done in the first section to what God will do through John in the second section. So look with me there in verse 74. Zechariah shows us that one of the purposes of salvation is to serve God. And so God saves us to serve him. You can't serve God if you haven't received salvation. He says it by being delivered from the hand of our enemies that we can then serve God. You've got to be delivered from the hand of enemy, the twin enemies of sin and death, before you can begin to even serve God. And so God delivers us from the oppressive hand of one master, that master being sin. You can go to Romans chapter 6, look more at that. He delivers us from one oppressive master, sin, living for sin. And then he delivers us to serve him as our new master. God has delivered us through Christ by dying for our sins and raising to life. So what does that mean to serve God? That's what I want to look at. What better example do we have than that of John the Baptist in our text? Other than Christ himself, okay? So looking at John the Baptist, notice the purpose of John's role in verses 76 and 77. It's to prepare the way of the Lord. Once again, we're getting fulfillment of Old Testament language coming over from Isaiah 40. It's to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, how's he going to do that? How does he do that? Well, it's by giving God's people knowledge of this salvation. That's how, God, that's how John prepares God's people spiritually. It's by giving them the knowledge of this salvation. Now, in one sense, clearly, we're not John the Baptist. John has shown up as the last of the prophets in a very unique time in salvation history, as it's now about to turn into this new age of salvation in Christ. And so in one sense, we aren't prophets of the Most High. We don't prepare the way of Jesus. However, John's role, in some sense, foreshadows our role. In some sense, we do, we are, in one way, kind of like John, right? We call people to repent and to turn to the Lord. We've also been called by Christ to go and to make disciples. Part of that is the fact that we're going to understand the message that we're calling people to turn from 
and follow Christ too, and follow Christ with. We got to know that message, and then we got to give that message. And so I want us to give. I want to give us two ways from this passage that we can serve the Lord as those who have been delivered from the hand of sin and death. Two ways. Number one, we need to grow in the knowledge of salvation, and then we need to give the knowledge of salvation. I think we see this with John. And I think that we can see this as well, as those who have been called to faith in Christ and who have turned from our sins and trusted in Him. We need to know the knowledge of salvation and give it. In verse 77, this knowledge of salvation has content. It says that this content consists of the forgiveness of sins. So the enemy spoken of in these verses is spiritual, right? It's sins. This is a spiritual enemy. So the very fact that we need forgiveness means that we're sinners and that there's someone that we've actually sinned against. And as we come to find out throughout the Gospel of Luke, man has sinned against the holy and merciful God, who is the king of all creation. And because man has rejected God as his and her king, we've established ourselves as king. And because of that, we deserve his judgment. All right, well, what do we do? What do we do about this? What's the answer for this problem that we find ourselves in? How can we be forgiven of our sins before a holy God. Well, that's where we meet the God-man Christ, as Luke talks about in his gospel. Luke 19, verses 9 through 10. He says to him, and Jesus talks about salvation when he's talking, about, when he's talking to Zacchaeus, the rich, chief, the rich uh, chief tax collector, a.k.a. the dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinner in Israel's day. He says to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. He's a spiritual son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So there is a knowledge of salvation. We have to know the content of salvation. That we have rejected God as our king, sought to set ourselves up as king, and yet there is an answer to this problem that we have of judgment on us. God has sent Christ to seek and to save the lost, to die for our sins, so that when we turn from our sins, when we repent of our sin and we trust in him, we can receive forgiveness of sins. That's the content of the gospel. That's what it is. And so we need to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of the gospel. But as well, it's not that we just know this message, but it's also that we've experienced this message. We have experienced new birth in Christ. That's what it means to grow in the knowledge of salvation, or to have this knowledge of salvation. Not only content, but also experiencing it for ourselves. So have you experienced this salvation? Why not? What's the response for you? It's to turn from your ways, from living a life under sin as your master, and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and receive all of those promises being fulfilled in Him, and now being credited to you because you're in Christ. It's to receive Christ. I think this is helpful whenever thinking of whether or not you're a believer or what you could do to be born again. Kevin DeYoung has a great quote. He says that the wrong question is asking, what can I do to be born again? The right question is, what would it look like if I were born again? What would it look like if I were born again? And then going from there, begin looking at how Christ and how those uh, in God's word lay out what it means to be a believer. Those who repent regularly, bear the fruit of repentance and faith regularly. All right, but there's a warning embedded in this gospel. Simeon in Luke 2, 34, 
states that with Christ coming, there is, he, it is appointed for those, for the rise and the fall of God's people and that the hearts, their hearts would be revealed. Meaning that when Christ comes, there are going to be some that are going to be part of his people and there are going to be some who are going to reject him. And there will be destruction that comes from that. There is a consequence for rejecting Christ and it's destruction. It's death for eternity. And for those who reject this salvation, they will, you will incur judgment. And so there is a warning that's embedded in this. So you have to know the content of salvation, and you need to experience this salvation so that you can, point number two, give the knowledge of the salvation. Look how Luke describes John giving the knowledge of the salvation in Luke 3, verse 3. So flip over to chapter 3 if you can. Look at verse 3. Luke says that John went into all the region around the Jordan, Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he moves on down into verse 18. And he says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Notice, John is proclaiming this salvation. How does he give the salvation? He's proclaiming it. He's proclaiming this good news. Meaning that there is content that actually comes out of his mouth. And so for us, over our break, who are those maybe within our family that we're going to be meeting up with that don't know Christ that we can give this salvation to, that we can give the the knowledge of this salvation to? Who's someone that maybe you're going to meet up with back home and that you need to take a conversation deeper spiritually? Who is that person that you're going to meet up with that you can have spiritual conversation with? Begin to speak words to them of the knowledge of salvation. We want that for them. We know there's an, uh, a warning embedded in that. And so think about those that you can have spiritual conversations with. Pray before you enter into those conversations and ask God, ask that God would move their heart and save them. Make a list, check it twice, and text someone from back home that you want to get lunch with them. All right? Think of questions that you can ask in order to get deeper into those conversations. Secondly, think about your family. Right? Think about your family that you can give. Holy smokes. Think about your family that you can uh, speak the gospel into. Think about that. Is there someone within your family right now that you can maybe serve in a particular way that can display the gospel to them? Is there someone in your family that you can speak the gospel to? Who is that? Try to set up a time where you can get with them over the break. Take them to a Christmas Eve service. If you're staying here over the break, we have a Christmas Eve service December 24th at 5 p.m. You can take them to that. The gospel will be proclaimed. If you're going back home, try to find a gospel-preaching church. Go to that church's Christmas Eve service. Try to get your family to go to that. The gospel, so that the gospel can be heard among them. How can you help prepare others this season to hear the gospel? And how will you prepare your own heart this season to receive the gospel. God has visited us in Christ, and that visitation points to another visitation when Christ will return for judgment for those who have rejected him and for salvation for those that have received him. There is coming a day when he will visit again, and he will take us home to be with him. So what are your expectations this season? Are they worldly or are they heavenly? Meditate on that fact that our, all our deepest expectations find their fulfillment in Christ. Think about how God's work relates to how we respond to this glorious work of salvation that he's accomplished for us in Jesus.